This is a talk by Fred Chambers titled Spiritual Psychology 102 Jewish Perspective, recorded March 21st, 2010, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, like I said, I'm continuing this series of talks on spiritual psychology today from the Jewish perspective. A couple months ago, I did it from a Buddhist perspective. And these different perspectives are kind of like going to foreign country. I just came back from Mexico, so... Like going there, you get a different perspective on how you view the whole environment, really. It's a different place, has a different language, and it takes a while to kind of settle in and get used to the rhythm. So these different perspectives are kind of a useful way to get different angles on similar topics. In this case, it's spiritual psychology. So at the center, like Bill was saying, one of, the, one of our goals is to foster a new world view in which the truths of science and the truths of the mystics are seen as different but complementary ways of viewing a single underlying reality. So this underlying reality, that really kind of sh- would shift the way humanity views itself. When that happens, we, it's useful from a psychological perspective to take a look at well, how would psychology operate in a system where this pure consciousness is seen as the ground of everything, including everything psychological. So that's basically what I mean by spiritual psychology. And here's a quote from Ken Wilber. He talks about how this, how psychology views itself now and how it would be different from a spiritual psychological perspective. He says, Orthodox psychology, in defining man's real self as ego, has to describe unity consciousness as a breakdown of normality, as an aberration of consciousness, or as an altered state of consciousness. But once unity consciousness is seen as man's natural state, his only real self, Then the ego may be understood as an unnatural restriction and constriction of unity consciousness. If we develop a a spiritual psychology for a new worldview, it would kind of take a look at this, how we constrict and restrict this pure awareness, how we form this ego, this self we call it. Psychology would take a look at how that's developed and then look at ways to kind of bring, bring people back to their true home, which is this pure awareness. So I talked from uh, the Buddhist perspective, and they have a well-defined psychology already. In Judaism, I couldn't find a really well-defined psychological perspective the way they saw things. So I I kind of pick and choose things. And I guess the one caveat I should mention first is that anything I pick and choose is kind of based on my own perspective and my own insights and what I think is valuable. And uh, the people from that tradition may or may, may not agree with what I would choose. And I guess I'm not trying to present a kind of completely formalized spiritual psychology, but basically just get the ball rolling in terms of what a spiritual psychology might look like. And so one of the strong points of the Jewish tradition, I think, is teaching stories they have. And so I'm going to focus on stories that kind of relate to a psycho-spiritual perspective from the Jewish tradition. The two main branches of Judaism that I'm going to draw for is Hasidism and Kabbalism. Hasidism was founded in the early 1700s by the Balsham Tov. Their system is a, it's called a Rebbe, Rebbe and a Hasid. The Rebbe is a spiritual teacher and the Hasid is a student, and they have a really close relationship that is somewhat like a counseling relationship, but probably more involved in every, every aspect of their uh, culture. I'll talk about Kabbalism a little bit later. So this first story I'm going to tell is from Rabbi Joseph Gelberman, 
And it's the most modern story I'm going to tell today. I've altered a little bit to fit with the western U.S. We're on a journey, we're headed home, it's kind of like driving down Highway 1 on the coast in Oregon or Washington or California. And it's, a, you know, there's beautiful sights to see, adventures around every corner, things to explore, different things. So it's just a smorgasbord of opportunities to check things out. And so you're headed down there and <clears throat> you see a sign that says McDonald's. So you pull off into McDonald's, you have a meal, and you decide not to leave. It's kind of gets out of the wind, it's a little bit comfortable there. You stay in this area and you eat McDonald's every day and basically you're stuck. You, you've gotten sidetracked from this journey on home. You need to bring awareness to your situation is really the only way you kind of find your way back on the, the, the highway. A variety of things can happen. Maybe the food you're eating can be so unhealthy that you have a crisis with your illness. And so then you realize, well, maybe there's more to life than just sitting here by McDonald's eating all the time. Maybe that's causing my suffering, so maybe I need to head back down the road. Or it could be that you've actually uh, been very successful. You've started out working at McDonald's. You've worked your way up to be a manager, and now you owned a McDonald's franchise, had all kinds of money and success, but you found it kind of empty. So that would be another kind of wake-up call. Of what else is there to life besides having money and owning this McDonald's? So that would be another way where you would decide to head back out on the highway home instead of staying in this one place. And really, any way we can get back is basically a question of, comes to us, who am I? It's kind of an age-old question that humanity has been trying to explore for millenniums. So that question drives us back on the road eventually. Who am I or what is this all about? So that's the first story. <laughs> the second story is once we've gotten started on the path, we can be kind of like a craftsman who can repair an instrument. We take the instrument apart and inspect all the parts, and we label what's good and what's uh, possibly useful and what's damaged and needs to be replaced. That's kind of what we can do with take a stock, an inventory of what's going on in our own life. Label certain traits as really positive and good and ones that are not so useful and ones that we kind of totally need to get rid of. Craftsman, even, you would have an order of repair or replacement. You would kind of list them all and decide what order you need to repair them and what needs to replace. And that analogy starts to break down a little bit with the, when you start examining yourself because you can't really, you have to continue functioning in the world. You can't really just take yourself apart and work on everything, get it back together and start going back out into the world again. But it is good to take that inventory to see what is useful and what's not. Just a few examples would be like, if you have a real natural curiosity about the world, that's a really useful trait to bring to a spiritual path. Because you're really always curious about what, what is going on, what is the true nature of things. That can be a really valuable thing. That would be a trait that's really a positive one. A trait of stubbornness is a trait that could be possibly useful. There's areas of your life where you might want to, uh, to let go of it a little bit, especially in relationships, if you're really a stubborn person and you're in a intimate relationship with somebody. That stubbornness is occasionally probably useful, but a lot of times you get stuck doing things a certain way and it's not going to be a very useful way to interact with a loved one. But it is really good on a spiritual path. It's very useful to have this stubbornness about, I'm just going to continue to find out really what's going on. What is it? Just keep persistence, persistence to keep coming back, even though things kind of get sidetracked maybe a few minutes or a few days, or a few weeks, a few months, but this persistence keeps coming back, this stubbornness, to keep, keep trying, keep going that, down that path. One thing that probably would be a really damaged part that you would need to get rid of is if somebody had a lot of physical violence in their life. 
if you are physically violent, that's really something you need to, to get rid of. You can use those emotions that come up, can be used on the spiritual path, but you really need to check the tendency to be physically violent. That's just some examples of things you could look at on a, for an inventory. Okay, the third story is about a Rebbe and a Hasid, a Hasidic path, that's the, the master and the, and the teacher. So the Hasid came to his Rebbe and was complaining about a lack of space in his dwelling. So there was no room, he, he needed more space. And, well, and so the Rebbe's advice was, bring in all your goat and chickens into the space with you. And the Hasid was kind of scratching his head, it didn't seem like that was great advice, but he went, he trusted his master, so he went home and brought all the, the goats and chickens in with him. And he lived that way for a while, and he went back to his Rebbe and started complaining. He said, your advice is, is not helpful at all. I have less space than I did before. And the Rebbe said, oh, okay, take the goat and chickens out of your space then. So he went back and he took the goat and the chickens out, and he came, and he came back to his Rebbe and he said, oh, that was great advice, now I have much more space. <laughs> Stories in general are kind of, they speak to us on a level beyond our thinking mind. So that's kind of one of the values of them. And some of these stories I'm going to give some commentary on and some pointers on what I think they're talking about. So it might kind of would alter the story a little bit from uh, just purely hearing it and pondering it yourself. These stories uh, often speak to us on several levels. And this one, one of the levels is really just contentment. Being really content with what we have. You know, not seeking for more. You know, there's a lot of things in life you can't change. Or even moment to moment, things just arise. And it's just this contentment with being with whatever is arising right now. And another level of this story is uh, encouraging people to, to be willing to try different practices. Even if to the thinking mind they sound like they're stupid or silly. Sometimes there's more to really learn than you than meets the eye. So it's just this willingness to try practices. But do you have a teacher that recommends a practice? It might be useful to try it out. And on another level, it's also talking about this spaciousness, which is also another uh, name for pure consciousness. And it's always there, no matter what we fill it up with. No matter how many goats and chickens or how many thoughts we bring into this spaciousness, it's always around us everywhere. And then we can let go of things. And actually, letting go of things, it's easier to see that spaciousness. But it's always there, no matter what. Whether it's being filled up with things or a moment of clarity. It's always this underlying reality is always with us. So actually we're going to do a, another little short meditation. So what we're going to do is, similar to this story, we're going to try to fill our minds with thoughts, constantly thoughts, for about three minutes, bring the God. <coughs> Not just any pleasant daydreams, lull back, kind of like I was doing in Mexico, drink a little tequila, and <laughs> just relax a little bit. But now this is, you're just trying to keep churning the thoughts constantly. There's just kind of a little bit of a tension there almost stress or tension of you really got to keep the thoughts going and then after three minutes I'll ring the gong and it's just to, to let those go and just rest in that that spaciousness that spaciousness kind of uh, appears a little more clearly and if a lot of thoughts start to come back well, then you can focus back on the breath again but we'll start with three minutes of just keeping thoughts going as constantly as possible
If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. So did anybody get a sense of the spaciousness opening up? People are nodding their heads, yeah. I think it's, I find it's easier to do that as, you know, the longer I'm in the practice. If you think of this two or three years ago, it would be a lot harder. It's nice to know that, you know, to see the progress a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So progress is kind of letting go of things. Huh? Yeah. Okay. Our next story is about a father. In our modern times, we could say it's either a father or a mother. But anyway, we'll talk about a father had a young child. He sought to frighten the child. So he dressed up in strange clothes, and he would appear in front of the child, and the child would be scared and scream and run away because he didn't recognize it was his father. But as time passed, the more the father would appear in front of the child and frighten him, the child would kind of start to recognize that, well, maybe he was somebody new. And finally he would call out, Father! Father! And so then the, the father would have compassion for the child, and he'd take off his costume and would appear as, as the, the father to the child. This story is interesting on a couple levels. Uh, one is that it's father and the child. It's kind of like the, uh, the source, the divine source of everything, and what this father represents. And the child... It's like this childlike quality that we need to have to observe things. This kind of innocence, like before words start to, before we label everything, it's just have this innocence of, this, of what things are. And also this natural curiosity to really explore things, like a child has, to keep coming back and trying to, to see what things really are. And another thing that this represents is that the end of suffering can only be found within suffering itself. By having our fear direct us away somewhere else, we'll never end our suffering that way. It can only be found within by facing what our fears are or what, what things seem to be frightening to us. It's to face those fears and then the end of suffering is when we recognize, wow, it's, it's not what we thought it was. It's just the divine in another form appearing to us. quote from Rebbe Naman of Bratzlaff addresses that end of suffering found in suffering. God is hidden in the obstacle. The wise man knows this. The fool turns back. And there's also this Jewish practice of raising the sparks. We saw a video a few weeks ago. It's titled Raising the Sparks. So the idea is everything in the world came down as sparks from God. And so everything we see, internally and externally, is a spark of God. Once you see that, then all the demons are kind of become friendly. Just like with this child seeing his father. It appeared as a demon, but really it's just a friendly, a friendly face in a, in a scary mask. Fred, yeah. are these stories from the Old Testament? I mean, are these um, more Old Testament stories being it's Judaism? 
Because it seems like in the, in the Old Testament there's a lot more feeling about a vengeful God than the New Testament. And uh, like, it seems like the father that's scaring this child seems really mean, you know what? It's a little innocent child, yeah, so you start to pounce on him and scare him to death and that's teaching him a lot. It just sounds mean. Uh, and and, it, and it's, it, that's what I was wondering it's from the Old Testament, which seems to concentrate more on a vengeful God. I don't know. I don't know exactly where they came from, but it's just a reflection, really, of what happens in our own lives, more than really a, than somebody trying to scare a child. It's, it's, it's just to see that we react to things in our environment like that. And this father figure just represents a divine, pure divinity or pure consciousness. And so, whenever we're frightened by something, you know, we usually kind of react just the way this child did. We don't recognize it as as an aspect of God or an aspect of the divine. It's taking it too literally, maybe. Yeah, it's something to ponder. It's, it's a story like that, even if it bothers you, you know, it's something to ponder. Think about it. It can speak to you on, on many different levels. The Old Testament is just one, one book or one set of books that people would study. There's a, a lot of the teachings, and these stories are not from the Bible. An expert back there. Not <laughs> <laughs> really. The next story is a Zen story, but it came out of this book, Zen Judaism. They start using each other's stories a little bit. It's kind of like the Jubu. Seems to be an affinity between the Jewish and the Buddhist perspectives. So anyway, this is this is a good. And we should say that's a, a Jewish self-applied right. label. This isn't a... not a pejorative term. <laughs> not meant to be. So it's a story of the samurai warrior. You might have heard it before, but it's a nice story. I like it anyway. So this young samurai warrior comes to his Zen master and asks him respectfully to teach him about heaven and hell. So the Zen master explodes in rage. You ignorant fool! I can never teach you about anything. You can understand it. I doubt if you could keep your sword from rusting before you get to the battlefield. So this just stuns the samurai. He's just stunned to silence. But then the <coughs> thought starts to come to him. Nobody can speak to a samurai like this and live. So his blood starts to boil, and he clenches his teeth, and he pulls his sword out to kill his master. And the Zen master looks at him gently and says, That is hell. And the samurai kind of got it. Oh, this was a teaching. And he just feels really grateful that you know, he was shown what hell was. And so he has all this love and compassion for this teaching. He bows to his Zen master. And the Zen master says, That is heaven. So he showed him what heaven and hell was. He showed him that it wasn't an external thing. It was how he responded to the environment where heaven and hell came from. But there's one other teaching that the Zen master gave him that seemed like, the, at least from the story, that the samurai <coughs> didn't comprehend at that moment. And that was when he stunned him into silence. He was getting a direct pointing of what ultimate reality is. It's just this this spaciousness where no thought arises, or nothing arises. Just for, just for a moment there, it was like... And then thoughts started arising out of that space. Emotions started arising, positive or negative, it didn't matter. But that first teaching was just to show him that that is the reality. That's always the reality. And then everything, heaven and hell, arises out of that. And so that using that kind of that shock is uh, used in several different traditions. 
Here's a quote from uh, Rebbe Yitzhak Mir. <clears throat> he says, I need a Rebbe who will flay the living skin from my flesh, not one who will flatter me. I'm sure as a Jewish spiritual uh, teacher, he would approve of uh, the Zen story. Okay, the next story is kind of a, a fun story, whether you're really on a spiritual path or not. It's this rabbi who lived in the community for many years, and he loved to do weddings for everyone. That's part of his role. And he always liked to remind the bride and groom of the significance of stomping on the glass during the ceremony. That was to represent that instead of breaking each other's hearts, he just broke a glass or a dish. And so he performed this wedding and explained this to him. And then the reception was going on, and he noticed this couple he married 10 years ago. He hadn't seen them for quite a while, so he went over to talk to them and asked them how it was. And the husband said, oh, it's beautiful. We have three kids. His life is wonderful. But he added with a grin, we have no dishes left. (laughs) (laughs) And the moral is? (laughs) Use plastic dishes. Go to Goodwill and another set of dishes. Okay, we're going to do another little meditation, but it's kind of a returning to the source. Kabbalist Rabbi Joseph Ben Shalom of Barcelona has this quote, In every transformation of reality, in every change of form, the abyss of nothingness is crossed, and for a fleeting mystical moment becomes visible. So he's talking about this gap between anything that arises in our environment, whether it's a thought, a sound, sight. Yeah, Abdul. Do you mind saying that again, please? Yeah. In every transformation of reality, in every change of form, the abyss of nothingness is crossed, and for a fleeting mystical moment becomes visible. It's similar to the story of the uh, Rebbe and the Sid of bringing his goats and chickens into this space and then taking them out again. So it's like whenever something enters our awareness and then when it, when it transforms or, or leaves, dissolves, there's just this, a fleeting moment where the, the reality is. That's why that Zen master did to the uh, samurai was to show him, make that moment a little bit longer, a little more clarity there to see it. Because it's always there. And it's just like that child starting to see things too. Seeing the reality of what is arising. And the Balsham Tov taught his students to follow thought back to its source. So that's the practice, you know, a little short meditation we're going to do here. This is probably a rather difficult practice to do because you have to have a pretty clear and stable mind to really be able to, to watch thought reach the end. And then, and then before another thought arises, to see that gap. Our attention is so habituated to jump on to the next thing that even when that gap appears, it's like, it's not a thing. It's a no thing. And so we're trying to look somewhere else. What else is there? Well, there isn't anything else, really. <laughs> Everything is arising out of this space. Even though it's kind of a difficult practice to do, it's always good to get a taste of these things. So we're going to try this. So first, just stabilize our attention on the breath for a few minutes. And then, that's what I'll ask you a question, and then use the answer formed in your mind, you know, the thought, 
or maybe even as an image or whatever it is. You just watch that thought dissolve. That's it. Then another thought will appear. Watch that one dissolve. But also, actually, the first thing we'll do, though, is listen to the sound of the gong dissolve. This gap, or this mystical moment, we can see reality at the end of everything. Just follow the gong as it dissolves, and there's that same, that same moment. Stabilize your attention and your breath for a minute or two, and then I'll, I'll ask you a question or two to kind of generate a thought. What is today's date? What is your favorite color? the definition of an eternal moment. Kabbalah, the definition for that word is to receive or to reveal. And so the Kabbalah could be defined as a philosophy that reveals the mystical to the human mind. And the primary symbol of the Kabbalah is the tree of life. as these ten spheres that are on the branches of this tree of life. 
And if you study them, it's supposed to give you clues into the mysteries of life. Now, this tree of life is described as by Kabbalists as a potent psychological tool for self-discovery and for profound inner knowing. So I'm, I'm not here to, to claim that that's not true, but from my own perspective of doing a little bit of study with it, it seemed a little more kind of obscure and complex and kind of difficult to understand, like something that you need to, seems like you need to spend years to kind of study it and, and kind of really understand how to use it. But I did start to get a sense of, sometimes there's opposites on this tree of life, there's a, sometimes these spheres are opposite characteristic or traits that we have in life. So it's to, to learn to balance between them. There's like one of, if somebody is a, kind of a greedy person, always trying to grasp, get the best deal, and the, you know, if they're a business person, always trying to take advantage of other people to get the best deal for themselves. It seems to kind of what drives their life. And so the opposite of that is of more of a generosity. So it's kind of to learn to balance between those two. So this is just one story that kind of kind of relates of seeing of somebody who's greedy and seeing that maybe they need to be a little more generous. So the story is of two brothers who are farmers, and they work together all the time to raise their crops. One brother had a big family with many kids. He lived on one side of the mountain, and the other brother was single. He had no family, no children. He lived on the other side of the mountain. And so each year they would divide their harvest equally. And so one year, shortly after they had divided the harvest up, the single brother couldn't sleep at night. He started thinking about his, about his married brother. He said, I shouldn't get half this crop. My brother deserves more than I do. He has his big family and wife to take care of. I'm here living by myself. I don't need this much. So he went out and he loaded up his wagon with part of the harvest and went around the other side of the mountain where his brother lived and unloaded the wagon. The married brother, also that same night, couldn't sleep either because he started thinking about his single brother. He said, and it's true that I have this family and maybe I need more, but my brother's going to be getting old soon and he'll need something to take care of himself. And I have this family. As I get older, they'll be able to take care of me. So he deserves more than I do. So he went out to his wagon and loaded it up, took it around to the other side of the mountain and unloaded it at his brother's place. And so the, the two brothers got up the next morning and they were kind of surprised they had the same amount of that they had the night before. <laughs> For the next three nights, they did the same thing. They couldn't sleep. They worried about it, so they got up and took it to the other brother. There must have been two rows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that's something to ponder about that. <laughs> it was very dark. <laughs> Anyway, on the fourth night, they both got up and did the same thing, but this time they took the same road. <laughs> they, they met in the middle of the mountain, and they both, oh, they understood what was going on. So they got out and embraced each other, exclaimed how happy they were to see each other, and, and God looked down at this place where he observed this meeting of the two brothers, and he said, this is a place where I want my temple built. So this really, it's a place where we become more concerned with others than with ourselves. And so that's the place in our spiritual life to build this, the temple of this selflessness. That's the place to really focus in on, to build this temple out of this selfless nature, being concerned for others more than our own welfare. So the last couple things are, aren't really stories. I call them wild cards. to come up with a name for them. But uh, one is an affirmation. I've never really liked affirmations in my life. I always thought they were one of those things that didn't have a lot of value. 
But when I saw this one, it, it seemed like it did have a little bit of value. And the affirmation is, I will not die. And it has to be understood from a spiritual perspective. I mean, you can add on to that, the body and ego will die, but I will not die. I found that just repeating that, after about 20, 30 seconds, it just happiness kind of arrives. Yeah, why don't we try that for 20 seconds? Just to say it to yourself, I will not die silently. You can add in there, the body and ego will die, but I will not die. I guess I'll ring, a, ring it, and then in 30 seconds, I'll... If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. affirmation, that would be something to try out. The other thing is, death is a mitzvah. Oh yeah, sorry. Just a comment, actually. I wanted to turn it from an affirmation into a riddle by adding one more piece, which is, who am I? I will not die, my body and ego will die, who am I? but I will not die, who am yeah. I? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of built in, for me that's kind of built in there, yeah, because I didn't verbalize it, but yeah, it's kind of, yeah, so I will not die, so yeah, yeah, so that's good. Yeah. What's left after? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I added on to it. No. Um, there is not an I. <laughs> yeah, that's another good way. Yeah. But it's creative here. It's, it's good to um, be creative with our spiritual practice, to add something or subtract something that kind of works for you. So, death is a mitzvah. Now, mitzvah is a good deed. Does it have any other meaning, Mark, from the... It's actually a commandment. A commandment. It's sort of that's become the idea of a good deed, but that's not really what it is. Oh. It's a commandment to... To do good deeds. To do, to do certain things. Well, they're not, they're not all good deeds, actually. Some of them are just... Not bad deeds. <laughs> Most of them. Okay. positive light anyway, let's say that. And actually all practice is a preparation for death. In most spiritual traditions it's actually, at least mystical traditions, they often say that, that all our practice is really a preparation for death. At the moment of death, the universe finally starts to cooperate with us. Instead of attention being filled with thoughts and sights and sounds, they're all of a sudden all taken away. In the death process, everything is stripped away, we lose Sight goes, thoughts, concepts disappear, sounds are gone. And so it's like, back to that um, affirmation, discovering who is it that doesn't die. There's still something there. After all, everything is stripped away. There's, what is that? So that's the value of death. 
from a psycho-spiritual perspective, seeing death as something that's not to be feared, but to, as a golden opportunity is really a, a positive thing. So, in summary, we've explored a variety of teaching stories from the Hasidic and Kabbalist perspectives in Judaism. We got sidetracked at McDonald's. We were like a craftsman repairing this instrument of ourselves. We invited animals into our space and let them out again. And we did a meditation on that. And we looked through the eyes of a young child and how he sees his parent and everything that arises. And we learned about heaven and hell with the samurai warrior. We did a meditation on returning to the source of pure consciousness that is between thoughts or at the end of thought. And we saw a place to build this foundation of practice in a selfless concern for others, like the two brothers. So I'm going to end with one last story, let it kind of speak for itself. And the title of this story is A Rebbe's Confession by Tavia Bolton. In a few moments it would be Yom Kippur, which is the uh, holiest day in the Jewish year. The silence filled the synagogue. And all, everyone in attendance either stared straight ahead or down at the ground, as if more dead than alive. The year was 1945, just after the war. They were placed as a refugee camp somewhere in Germany. And all the congregants, congregation was made up of Jews who had just been released from the prison camps. And they had gathered in one of the barracks, turned into a synagogue to pray. The unanimously chosen rabbi for that night was the famous Klausenberger Rebbe, Yuktil Halberstam. His holiness and erudition were unquestionable, and even more amazingly, he had re retained his sanity while losing his wife and 11 children to the Nazis. This congregation was made up of a wide variety of Jews, from ultra-Orthodox to ones who had never been in a synagogue before. But they all had one thing in common, no one but them could possibly know what they had just been through. Slowly the cantor began singing and everyone joined in. There was much genuine weeping that night. Until they got to the confession prayer, in which they asked forgiveness, sins they'd done of their eyes and their hands, through brazenness and callousness. And one of the congregants stood up and stomped his foot. No! No! Everyone looked at him, and a couple of people tried to quiet him down. He just stared at them. No! What? I should ask God for forgiveness for things I did with my eyes? My eyes saw my own children killed. I didn't have time to commit sins with my hands. I was working for the Germans night and day. What? I was brazen? I couldn't dare lift my head for three years. Callous? I gave my last piece of bread to people I didn't even know. No! No! If anyone should ask forgiveness, it is God. God should ask us for forgiveness. He gave the Nazis eyes to see and hands to torture, brazenness and callousness to rape and kill. So let him ask us for forgiveness. The room fell silent, and all eyes turned to the Klausenberger Rebbe. After several seconds of silence, he cleared his throat and said, you are right. Everyone burst out into uncontrollable weeping. People fell to their knees and put their faces in their hands and wept and wept and wept. Finally, after the crying had subsided, the rabbi continued where he had left off. 
But I want to tell you why I did ask God for forgiveness today. In our camp, the guards used to play a cruel, sadistic game every morning. They would line us up and pick five individuals who had to carry a heavy load of bricks up a steep flight of stairs. If one brick fell, they put two bricks in its place. If a prisoner fell, they would slowly torture him to death in front of our eyes. It's true, the rest of the day wasn't much better. It was bitterly cold. Our clothes were full of lice. We hardly had anything to eat. Everyone was sick. Prisoners were dying like flies. But the worst and most humiliating thing was that morning ordeal. It got to the point that the prayer each of us said before going to bed at night was, God, merciful God, let me die in my sleep tonight. Don't let me wake up tomorrow morning. I used to say it often myself. That is what I just asked forgiveness for. That is the sin I confess this Yom Kippur. It never entered my mind that if I'm going to pray, if I'm going to ask something from God, I should ask for Him to set me free. I forgot that there could be such a thing as being free. Amen to that. So, any uh, questions, comments? I was um, actually curious to what your answer, oh, yeah, what your answer would be to the last question you posed us in that meditation. What an infinite moment! Eternal moment. Eternal moment. <laughs> well, the question was just kind of put out there to get your mind going. Actually, uh, eternal moment is is a moment without time. It, it struck me as almost a con. So I'll throw out what came up for me and maybe that give you more to respond to. Um, I sort of think of a moment as something distinctive. Like it's something that makes something a moment is that there's something happening in that moment that differentiates it from other moments or other blocks of time or, or areas or whatever. But in a definite moment, then there's nothing distinctive about that moment anymore. Then it's not a moment. You know, then it's just... Like, my mind just sort of came to a point where like, I couldn't even ask the question. So maybe the intention, but I, I thought it was a really interesting... Yeah, actually, it was kind of designed also to be kind of a koan. I mean, you can, we can talk about it a lot and try to define it, but it's like there is no really ultimate answer. The moment is just another label for something. I mean, what is a moment? If we try to find a boundary to a moment, you'll never find one. Where does one moment end and the other one begin? I did find it really interesting, sorry. That, uh, and I've never done this before. It seems like we've done this exercise, but um, watching a thought dissolve. And actually, it's exactly what happens. Like, okay, that one, I, I, okay, I'm done thinking about that now, and it just kind of went away, you know? And it was really interesting to see that's just how it is. Yeah. They, they, they just sort of like get quiet like a bell, and, <laughs> and it's gone. They do, yeah. Exactly. And it dissolves into this pure space pure spaciousness, then the tendency is always to say, well, what, what's next? The mind always wants to move somewhere else. If you can just see there, just be there with that. You don't need to do anything. Yeah. And for me, the eternal moment is now. Yeah. That's all there is. And, but even the now, can we can get tripped up with labeling things now also. But yeah, it's true. In a sense, that's all there is, is this eternal moment.
of a still silence. Yeah. Okay, there is no... Yeah. I just have to make a correction, because I'm probably responsible for it. The quote you gave from Joseph Ben Scholem about crossing the abyss of nothingness and the mysteries revealed is actually Gershom Scholem's summing up Joseph Ben Scholem's teaching. Uh, so it's actually Gershom Scholem who you're quoting. Uh, okay. I, I actually have a question. This is maybe a little bit challenging, when I, and this is only the second in your series, so it's not really a fair question to ask. But. Um, in the same way that you just came back from Mexico and you felt like you experienced like a different flavor or perspective on life, because it's just, it's just a different place, a different culture and everything. In your study, in like your reading of these books, how would you, I don't know, describe the different Jewish spiritual quality? Like, how does Judaism seem different to you? How does it complement other things? Like, what is, it that, what is that thing that you would say seems unique or special? The stories is what I focused on, because it is that humor... And also, these stories are used to, to teach us things. The other thing to add on to that, for the, from the Jewish perspective, it's, there's this whole cultural and social economic thing that where their, their whole history of the Judaism has kind of been everything. And so it's really hard to separate things out reading these books. I mean, even today, the Rebbe and the Hasid still do similar things that they did two, two 300 years ago. And so there's this cultural perspective that they bring. If you're within that culture, you know, it can be really valuable because you're kind of speaking from that same place. But the difficult part is to bring that out into a, to integrate it more with the other traditions. It's just a little bit difficult. In the, the Rebbe and the Hasid relationship, there's a real love relationship. It becomes kind of a, a love relationship. If there's a lot of intimacy, probably in, in Judaism. I don't know if that's particularly unique, but they have a real a love for each other. Those are things that come to my mind. Yeah. I have a similar kind of question, which is, what's the Zen one called again? Zen Judaism. Zen Judaism. So what, how, how is that different than like a book called Zen Buddhism? What does the Judaism part? Oh, well, it, it says full of teaching tales, you know, little short stories. And most of them, I don't know what percentage, but there's the, the rabbi from the Jewish tradition, and there's also a, a Swami, I think, that had some stories. This rabbi was friends with somebody from the Buddhist or Zen tradition. And so I guess they traded stories back and forth. And so this, and the rabbi is kind of the editor of this, and he put in teaching stories from both traditions. So Zen Buddhism would just basically be about the Buddhist stories. Buddhist half. Yeah. So it's a collection of different stories. Yeah. Okay. We'll bring the formal part of the morning to a close. Have some tea if you want afterwards. Till we meet again, be still.